Hey, my name is Josh, and I'm so glad to see you all this morning. I'm one of the ministers here at Clear Creek. If you're a guest, welcome. This is, this is our family. This morning, we're going to get right into Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. So as we're getting into this text, uh, I want to share with you just a, sort of briefly something that happened about 5 a.m. last Sunday morning. I don't know if you've ever had one of these moments, but it was, a, it was something of sort of a, a scary moment. I woke up, got ready. I get in my car about 5 a.m. last Sunday morning, and as I'm about to turn on my lights, pull out of my driveway, this car comes sort of moving through the, the neighborhood pretty fast, and it comes, speeds around. I flip my lights on, and when he sees my lights, he moves, it seems, even quicker. Now, here's the reason this is kind of scary. Uh, two things. One, 5 a.m. is kind of early. And number two, we live on a cul-de-sac, which means you don't expect folk to be driving through your street, especially when at the head of the street it says dead end. So it's like, what, why are you here? And then it occurred to me I had seen the same vehicle parked outside of my house just a few days earlier and, and same time just sitting there. And so I thought, well, you know, this is just a little hinky. And so I, I say, I know what I'll do. I will follow the car. <laughs> Which, by the way, may have been a very foolish decision on my part. But, but I begin to follow the car. And I notice that the car leaves. And instead of heading towards the entrance of our subdivision, the car goes deeper in and takes another left into yet another dead-end road. So I kind of watch. This is weird. A moment later, emerges and continues even deeper in. And so I'm like, this is just not okay. So I follow the car. I follow it, and by the time I kind of get up to where the car is, it's already coming back towards me. Now, when it sees me, it quickly turns into someone's driveway. The guy hops out. He opens his trunk, and I'm thinking, oh, no. I I mean, come on, we're in the south. And so I'm not sure what to expect. I keep driving. I come. I turn back around. By the time I'm back around to almost behind where the car is, this vehicle waits. He's already back in his vehicle. I I pull past. He backs out and he begins to follow me. I assume it's a he, maybe it's a she. I don't know. And the car begins to track with me as I'm leaving the neighborhood. I speed up. The car speeds up. I slow down. The the car slows down and all of a sudden the lights just disappear. I don't know if they turned or lights off. And I'm going, this just, this isn't good. And so I do what any, you know, guy would do. I quickly call my wife and, you know, so I, I begin to then text neighbors. I say, hey, just, just want you to know, in fact, this is one of the texts I sent, and, and we have some neighbors. I don't know if you can read this or not, but we have some neighbors who actually attend our church here, uh, Tim and Jennifer Smith. And so I was texting all of our neighbors, and, and this is basically what I said. This is to one of my neighbors, Angela. I wrote, I said, hey, Angela, Josh Diggs here. Just want you and Steve, your husband, to know that I saw a white sedan driving through our, well, okay, I can't spell, cup de sac, evidently. About 30 minutes ago, this same sedan was sitting on our street with its lights on a couple days ago at 5 a.m. Today, I watched and followed him. The man inside was driving up and down every street with no discernible direction or reason for doing so. Not sure what to make of it, but I wanted you to know about it. Have a great Sunday. Which, I mean, how do do you kind of end that one? He may have been released from prison and wanting to kill us all. God bless you. So, a little bit later, I get this response from her. She writes, thanks for the info, we'll keep a lookout. Now, at this point, I'm thinking, you know, if something happens, I will never forgive myself. So, as I'm driving to church, 
I think I know what I'll do. I'll call 911. I'll just let them know. So I call dispatch. She says, what's your address? I give the address. She says, what's your emergency? I said, well, I'm not sure if it's an emergency, but here's the situation. And she says, well, do you know the address or the make and model? I said, it's white and it's a car. She, and you could almost, I could almost hear her rolling her eyes on the other end like, oh, that's helpful. But she says, hey, we'll send a patrol car out. And I'm like, yeah, okay, good. And, and about this time, I'm feeling really good about myself because I have single-handedly protected my neighborhood from what I'm confident is a mass murdering guy who's, who's out to, you know, put you in the fridge when he's done. I mean, something like that. That's what I've saved everyone from until Sunday afternoon, I got another text from Angela and here is what she wrote. I think it's the newspaper man. <laughs> Now, there's no proof it's the newspaper man, church. I just want to be very clear on that. I'm still convinced I saved us from something pretty horrific. But the thing that kind of occurred to me is that sometimes we get people wrong, don't we? We think one thing about them. Hey, you can go past this slide. I don't need the slide of shame up there the rest of the message. We, we see something, we see something in a person, or, or, or we kind of assume something, and the next thing we know, we have a perception that may not be true of them, amen? And, and it's interesting, how you perceive someone is how you tend to receive someone. If you see the person as a good person, you receive them as a good person, but how many of us know that there are times where we have perceived someone wrongly, and we treat them according to what we think we know about them? The text that we are about to dive into, I think, is so important for us today because it's all about how do you see God? How do you see other people? How do you see your stuff? That everything is a matter of perception, and if you see it wrongly, you'll behave wrongly. If you see it rightly, you'll behave rightly. It will impact what you do based on what you see and what you perceive. And so the text we're about to read this morning is all about how a group of people wrongly perceived Jesus and it ultimately led them down a wrong path. And I'm sharing this with you because I don't want anyone in here. Hear me now. I don't want anyone in here. And more than me, God doesn't want anyone in here to misunderstand who he is, to misunderstand who you are, to misunderstand your stuff, because all of eternity hangs in the balance with how you perceive, because it'll determine how you receive. So these are the verses of Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Jesus, this is probably Tuesday of the final week of Jesus' life before he dies. It says this, verse 13, later they, we'll come back to who the they are, later they sent some of the, say this word with me, Pharisees and this word, Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Now, real quick, context matters. The they in this passage are members of the Sanhedrin. This was the ruling Jewish council made up of 70 men from the Jewish community. They were the leaders of the leaders. They came from one of three groups, the scribes. They were sort of like the scholars of the day. The Pharisees, who were a religious group about fulfilling and obeying the Torah or the Old Testament law, 
And the third group was a group called the Sadducees. We're going to talk about Sadducees this Wednesday night in the cafe. So if you want to learn more about them, we're going to get into that this week. But these three groups made up the Sanhedrin, the ruling group, which helps us understand why certain people come after Jesus one after the other after the other in these chapters, because it's a coordinated attack against Jesus from the Sanhedrin. And they send the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, who are these groups? Now, the Pharisees, go ahead and put this up. The Pharisees were the hyper-religious group. They kept the law and they made laws on top of laws on top of laws so that everyone would keep the law. In fact, the name Pharisee means, put this up, separate ones. They believed that their right standing before God was based on how much they could separate themselves from the rest of the culture in the way that they lived and behaved. The Herodians, though, were completely the opposite. In fact, do you notice who they supported church? I want you to see this. The Herodians. The Herodians supported the Herod dynasty. Now, who's Herod? Herod was a puppet ruler put in place by Rome to subjugate and rule over the Jewish people. And the Herodians were those who basically said, you know, the way salvation comes is not by separating from the world. It's not by being different. Rather, the way that we find salvation is cozying up to Rome. And how the rest of the Jewish people would have thought of them is if the Pharisees are the separate ones, the Herodians are the sellouts. So you've got separate and sellouts. Radically different ends And this will explain why they hated each other. They did not get along. And yet, and yet, hear this now. Because they hated Jesus more, they united with people they would never otherwise unite with. Isn't it interesting that when you deny God, when you fight against Him, you will find yourself doing things that you never imagined you would do before? That we will actually cozy up and be with people and places and things. When we turn our back against God, we end up doing things we'd otherwise never imagine ourselves doing. So, the Sanhedrin sends these two groups, and here's what they're going to do. They're going to try to test and trap Jesus with a scenario. A, a, hey, what about this, Jesus? Because they do this in front of a large crowd. Okay, so next verse. Here's what it says. They came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. And by the way, you can just sort of hear the the, the insincerity dripping from their lips. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So let us ask you a question. Are you ready? Here's the question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? They're asking Jesus a tricky tax question. This is a trick question because any answer Jesus gives potentially will be his downfall. And Jesus knows this is a trick because look what he says next. Jesus knew their hypocrisy. A hypocrite is someone who wears a mask. It was a play actor on stage. You'd call an actor a hypocrite because they would be wearing a mask to look like someone else on stage. And Jesus says, you're just play acting. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. So he knows that this is a trap. You say, well, how's this a trap? Well, 
A couple things. First, if Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes, then those who support Rome will go, fantastic, he's our boy, he is not against Rome, but the people will run from Jesus. In fact, in their day and age, the Pharisees, many of them, told the Jewish people that they were under no obligation to pay taxes to the evil empire of Rome. So if he says, yes, pay your taxes, the people will flee. But if he says no, then the Herodians, those who support Rome, who are a part of that group, will go to Herod, say, this man, Jesus, is against Rome. He will not pay his taxes, and he should be executed. So lose the people or lose his life. That's the dilemma. So Jesus, being Jesus, says, okay, tell you what, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. He then asks this question. Whose image is this? And whose inscription? He looks at the coin and he says, there's a picture on it. Whose picture is on it? There are words on it. What words are on it? And they say, Caesar's, they replied. Now, here's a picture of what was most likely the coin or the type of coin they were looking at. This is a first century denarius. On the left, this face picture is a picture of Caesar at the time. His name was Tiberius. Everybody say, boo. (laughs) Tiberius was the king or the emperor of the Roman Empire. And he was, while not one of the worst emperors, he was still a pagan who did not think twice about killing those who opposed him. On the other side is a picture of Tiberius' mother sitting on a throne wearing regal robes. Her nickname, by the way, was Pax or Peace. This is the image. And so they say, well, it's Caesar's image. And because it's on a little coin, he is the little Caesar. (laughs) And so they said, this is Caesar's image. Now, a couple things about the denarius. Only Caesar had the legal right to mint coins in gold or silver. If you were not Caesar, you could not have any coinage in gold or silver minted. That was Roman law. It was also Roman law that said that any coin minted by Caesar in Caesar's image belongs to Caesar. He's just letting you sort of borrow it is all it is. And so Jesus says, in whose image or what image... It's on the coin. And they say, Caesar's. But the reason the Jews hated this question about taxes was not simply that they don't like to pay taxes. It was because, in their mind, it was a deeply idolatrous proposition. Here's what I mean. According to the second of the Ten Commandments, the Jews were forbade from creating images of any person. And what is this? It is an image of a person. In addition to that, the inscription, Jesus says, uh, whose inscription is on this? What does it say? Well, if we could read this better, what this side says is it says, Tiberius Caesar, get this now, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, Tiberius Caesar, son of God. And this was highly, highly idolatrous. In fact, the name Augustus, for those of you who are interested in names, the word Augustus was not that Caesar's proper name. It was rather an honorary title given him by the Roman Senate. It simply meant one who possessed divine majesty. In other words, to call anyone August 
was blasphemy to the Jews because no one had divine majesty but God himself. And so these coins, these little silver coins worth a day's wage were idolatrous. And on the back, it says, it says Pontiff Maxim, which simply means high priest. So these coins said that Caesar is king of kings and he is the ruler of the religion. He is the big guy over all big guys. So Jesus, do you endorse this? Or do you endorse God? What'll it be? And I love Jesus. He is so smart, which by the way, when you have an insurmountable question or situation, here's what James 5 to, or 1 5 tells us, that if you lack wisdom, you don't know what to do, you go to God because ours is a God who has the answer for everything, even impossible questions. And so Jesus says, whose image? They say Caesar's. And now look what Jesus says in verse 17. Then Jesus said to them, give... To Caesar, what is Caesar's? And to God, what is God's? And they were all amazed. They were just amazed. So, a couple quick things as we kind of think about what this might mean for us. The first thing is simply this. Jesus says, according to Roman law, this is basically what he's saying, according to Roman law, that coin belongs to Caesar, so give him his stuff. Why are we arguing over ownership. It has his image on it, so give to him his stuff. Here's the bottom line for Christians. Church, we are called to pay taxes. I'm not expecting you to amen that one, okay? But we are called to obey the laws of the land. This is Romans 13. We are subjected under leadership, under government, for a purpose, but it's not because government is in control, but because God himself has established governance. And so we honor, we submit, we pay taxes. But it goes deeper than this, because he then says, and give to God what is God's. In other words, let's go to the next slide. Image confers ownership. You want to know what to give Caesar? Well, look at what has his picture on it. You want to know what to give to the government? Well, look at what picture is on it. But this is also true now of give to God what is God's. Image confers ownership. How many in that audience do you think that moment when Jesus made that statement, their minds raced back to the very first chapter of the book of Genesis in which we read God saying these words, let us, this is God speaking, let us make man in, say these words with me, our image in our likeness. That God's image is stamped on every human being. And so God is saying, you give to God what is God's. You have the image of God on you, so you give, to yourself, give him yourself. This is what Jesus is saying. And the people are amazed. Now, when I think about the image that is on you, this has some profound implications that the image that you have on you determines so many things. In fact, if image confers ownership, you may want to write this down. Next slide. Ownership determines inscription. The ownership determines inscription. Uh, how many of you have ever had a pair of you know, pants, a shirt, or something that your mom, or maybe if you're a parent, you actually have done this, but you've written the name of the person on the clothing. I any of you, maybe in the tag? See, I had a mom. Everything was tattooed with my name because I lost stuff all the time. Anyone else have that kind of a mom? 
So, so your shirt has your name on it. Your pants have your name on it. I had a friend whose mom did that with his undergarments even when he was in high school. I said, dude, why is that necessary? And he said, she tells me that if I'm ever in a horrific accident, she wants them to still be able to identify me. And I said, that's just weird. Well, oh, his name is Bob. And that was the way it goes. But how many of us know that the ownership determines the inscripture? That who owns it gets to write their name on it. God owns you. And me, you say, yeah, but what about people who've yet to give their lives to Christ? Listen, just because I have not acknowledged his ownership does not change his ownership. He owns me whether I believe it or not. Because I have the image of God on me and you have the image of God stamped on you. You belong to God. Now, let me tell you why this is such good news, church. These guys got it wrong And because they did not remember their sacred text, they were letting other people label them. So for the Herodians, these are men and women. These are people who followed Herod. And because they thought their life was secured, that their trust could be found, their security was assured in the man named Herod, what did they name themselves? Herodians. I am of Herod. Because they did not understand whose image was on their lives, they allowed others to label them. The Pharisees did the exact same thing, but instead of letting other people label them, they labeled themselves as separate ones, meaning it is about what I do that determines who I am. So you have the Herodians who let some other group label them. It's because of another person, that's who I am. Listen, if you don't know that you're made in the image of God, you will often allow other people to determine who you are instead. You will allow people to determine your value, your worth, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. This is a fundamental identity issue. And if you do not know who God is in you, who he has made you to be, if you do not see his stamp, his image in your life, then you'll either let others stamp you or you'll stamp yourself by your good deeds and you'll begin to identify yourself by what you do. Well, well, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a separate one. I am this kind of person because of what I do. And here's what ends up happening. You begin to label yourself based on your performance, by your political party, by your marriage partner, by your parenting skills. You begin to see yourself by what you do. What happens when you can't do what you say you're supposed to do? There goes your identity. This is an identity issue. Jesus says, give to God what is God's. He has put his image on your heart. He has stamped himself on you. And we know this is so true that ownership determines inscription. And here's why we all know this to be true. Are you ready? Because we've all seen Toy Story 1, haven't we? How many of you have seen the original, the greatest of the four Toy Stories? You don't have to agree with this last statement, but how many of you have seen Toy Story? I I love this movie. It's an old movie now. That's weird to say of a cartoon, but it is an old movie. There's that scene in the film where Woody is so proud of the fact that his owner, Andy, has written his name on the sole of Woody's foot. 
And then Andy writes his name on the sole of Buzz Lightyear's foot. Right there. What you need to know is God Almighty, because you are made in his image. At the moment you confess Christ as Lord and are baptized into him, we are told that God himself says of you, this is my son or this is my daughter. I am pleased with him. I am pleased with her. God is writing his name. He's inscribing a new identity on your life because you've been made in the image of God. If you allow him to be your owner, if you come to him and say, I trust you as the good God of all things, he then inscribes his name and he says, you're mine. And here's here's the big idea. Because he's labeled you, a couple things are true and we're going to call it a morning. Are you ready? Here it is. Because God has labeled you, here's a few things. Number one, we don't give ourselves to anyone else as our owner because only God owns us. We don't give ourselves to anything other than for God because God is our owner. Here's what I mean by that. The reason we do not entangle ourselves with sinful behavior is because God owns us and nothing else gets to own us. Amen, church? Let's try this again. Amen, church? God owns us. It doesn't just mean that he owns you. It means he defines what you do. I think about my daughter, Emma. She plays with every one of her toys all the time, and, and it's sort of a running conversation. We'll, we'll be at the dinner table. She'll bring Brownie, the puppy dog. She named Brownie because it's, it's brown. And, and, and Brownie, the dog. And she'll bring another animal. And, and she's constantly having conversations. In fact, sometimes um, they'll, they'll, they'll be having a conversation, and I'll try to cut in, and she'll be like, just, just, a, just a moment. And then they'll continue their conversation. She decides what they do because she owns them. God owns us. He decides what we do, church, how we live, what we do with our lives. Second thing, though, is because God owns us, you you realize how valuable you are? How much is something worth? Answer? It's worth whatever someone is willing to pay for it. Don't forget what day it is in this text. It's Tuesday, and in less than three days, the one who stamped his image on you will go to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus will pay for you. He will utter three words in English. It is finished. That's another translation of this phrase, paid in How much are you worth because you've been made in the image of God? Well, you answer that with the question, how much is Jesus worth? Because that is what was paid for you. You are made in the image of God, and everyone you've ever met is made in the image of God. And so, church, this morning, what he says, he says, listen, you don't define yourself by your successes, but you also don't identify and inscribe yourself by your failures. You are the image bearers of God. Give yourself to the one that you can trust. Caesar doesn't love you enough to die for you. No one else is willing to pay the kind of price that you have been paid for, but God himself has done this. And so Jesus says this, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Look, 
We do it not because Caesar tells us, but because the one who owns us tells us to pay our taxes. And then you give yourself to God, and as you do, you will recognize your value, you will recognize your worth. The one who owns you paid for you an incredible price.